All right, we made it to 2023. I gotta say, 2022, I've had the most colds of my entire life since we send a member of our household to daycare so often. She brings back everything. Um, so, you know, we're still getting our bearings. I've got a stuffed up nose. We're just a couple days into the new year. So we're going to keep things laid back this week on the podcast. No fancy intro, um, but I guess I should still do my usual spiel. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And this week, I'm excited to share my conversation with an old friend, Jeff Durso. Jeff is an assistant professor of marketing at DePaul University, but we first met more than 10 years ago. I was still a new graduate student at Ohio State when Jeff joined the lab I was in. Flash forward, and I think Jeff is probably the person with whom I've been to the most happy hours. So many afternoons, into evenings, into nights, talking about science, entertainment, and nothing in particular. But very few mornings, <laughs> because Jeff is not a morning guy. I'm calling this week's episode A Mixed Bag, in part because it's a conversation we had catching up at a conference last year, so we just we cover a lot of ground. But also because Jeff studies the experience of facing mixed information. When a person does both good deeds and bad. When a product has lots of positive attributes and a bunch of negative ones. When an option in front of us has a bunch of pros and cons. Generally, we call this experience ambivalence. This has come up on the show plenty of times before. You can hop back to episode 35, for example, with Edith Schneider for her take on it. But Jeff has come at ambivalence from a bunch of interesting angles. Should we feel conflicted when information is mixed? When are we more or less bothered by the lack of a simple conclusion that we can draw? He's got a bunch of cool work on this question. So let's hear about it. Here's my conversation with my old buddy, Jeff Durso. So what is the most weird about talking to people I know is I already know them. Yes. <laughs> so for this show, it's, it's way easier to talk to someone who I'm interested in, but I've never met them or I only kind of know their work. And so then it's like, I do a little bit of my research, but it, in the end, I'm sort of like figuring it out with them. Whereas I've known you for too long. <laughs> like I was, I think I was a second year grad student when you joined the lab. Right? We, yeah. We're only a year apart. Yeah. And so I've seen what, whatever we're going to talk about, <laughs> I've seen it from the beginning. We've had more overlap, I think, than I have had with anybody else. Probably. Yeah. Cause not only do we have like a temporal overlap, but it's in the same lab, like one desk away from me. <laughs> <laughs> but what I do remember about, you coming in is you were the ambivalence guy from the jump. Yes. Like from day one, you were like, I am here to study the phenomenon of ambivalence. Yeah. Um, and you seem to know so well <laughs> that that was your interest in a way that most people who start grad school don't actually have any real clue. So like, why was that your thing? Yeah, I started um, because of, I had a great final year of undergrad that I kind of considered almost year zero when I was at Indiana of uh, year zero of grad school because I got to take graduate level courses. I took a seminar in attitudes. I took um, two stats courses and I was doing a ton of reading. I was in the lab. I was designing studies. So it felt like I was already going through a lot of that phase of discovery before I went to grad school. And so when I got to the 
um, a lot of the inconsistency stuff and then applying that to uh, attitudes, that's obviously going to lead you right to ambivalence a lot of the time. So I uh, started off with that idea of implicit ambivalence. And so I was very interested in when our kind of gut reactions to things um, betray or are otherwise in the opposite direction of what we say we like or dislike. And so classic uh, versions of that are racial attitudes, of course. So I just got done moderating an implicit bias session. Um, the, um, the extent to which there's uh, kind of like an acknowledgement of that too really fascinated me. And so that ended up being why I pivoted from implicit ambivalence. I was like, I'm just kind of more interested in when people have both positive and negative reactions to things. And so that's kind of been my drive since then. You know, people do these, like you said, uh, implicit ambivalence is often racial biases where you mm -hmm. sort of these, these abstract notions I have of social groups and I feel one way and I express myself in a different way. Um, or people talk about ambivalence in issues, right? Like political issues. Like I, I see merit to one side of this and to the other side. And so I'm conflicted, right? That's what ambivalence is. And what I found interesting is I, like most of the work that you've ended up doing seems to be very person centric mm -hmm. ambivalence, right? which is, and you, I'm sure, can explain it better, but I'm going to take a crack at it first, which is like, you know, there are people that you meet and you go, I don't know, there's like, there's there's reasons to think you're a good guy. <laughs> there's reasons to question how good a guy you are. And so I'm conflicted, right? Or I, I, you make, you you're, make me laugh and you make me feel good, but I know there's these ulterior motives maybe. And so that's that moment of conflict. Like we, we face those with the people that we meet and our own people that you know we know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like your family, right? Yes. People have ambivalent Ooh. relationships with members of their own family. Oh, yes. Um, so I, 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 maybe that captures it. But like for you, mm -hmm. what what is it about ambivalence when it comes to the person perception area that makes it kind of like this is the playground where you were? That yeah, you nailed a lot of it. Like you suspected you would. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, a lot of people are people experts or kind of lay experts already. So it's it's a more motivating or easier method to use to investigate kind of how people think and. I like thinking about how people work. And so it reflected in my methods too, which is people like thinking about other people too. So, and in particular, ambivalence is great because there's people that are acting in ways that you like and other ways that you're like, what did they do right now? That's almost the entire like industry of, you know, reality television is trying to figure out like, who are they a good person or do I, am I on their side or a lot of those questions people ask are, I think, ultimately about resolving ambivalence or playing with it in their minds. Like, I don't know what to think about this person. I've done it before. And what I think was uh, maybe un, uh, underlying some of the question that I think is interesting, too, is like, well, that has nothing almost at all to do with marketing. So how did that end up being a big part of what uh, I'd use in my methods? Um, and that's mostly true. I mean, a lot of what I do in marketing now is about like kind of advertising campaigns or brands and products that people use and all and, and the way they kind of have policies that treat other people, not necessarily people they're thinking about directly, though. Um, so I, I like uh, like coming up with behaviors that people will do that are mildly positive, that are sometimes very fun to, to me, and the mildly negative ones as well. And then imagining a person just watching them throughout their day do all 20 of these ambivalent mixed behaviors. And that, and, that entertains me too a lot, like what persuasion studies do with like generating weak arguments about like the packaging's amazing. And that's always to us like, that's, that's, the, that's the argument you're <laughs> making for this. 
So that's that's a big reason, a combination of reasons why I'm into the people mm-hmm. stimuli in my studies. So in an experiment, like what does that look like, right? So if you present mm-hmm. people with some social stimulus mm-hmm. and, and people can be guided to see that in an ambivalent or an unambivalent way, like what is it that people in your studies are actually doing? Yeah, great. Uh, great question. So I, I, I am a very much an experimentalist. So I really enjoy the process of coming up with a situation that feels psychologically real for any person that's getting to take it. So I give them some kind of like cover story often that's going to be revolving around we're interested in how people make organizational decisions or we're interested in how consumers learn about other consumers in the marketplace or we're interested because we're working with clinicians and how do people that have mood disorders maybe act this way or how do people and just normal people act in everyday life. So we're going to have this redacted info. We're going to anonymously call this person Bob almost always in my (laughs) studies. And uh, Bob is going to hear... uh, give you some actually observed behaviors and you're going to learn them one at a time. And we just ask you to briefly visualize it as it's happening. And so we control per kind of screen. They're going to get like five seconds of like Bob stopped his car to help out a, you know, another bicyclist while he was on his way home from work. And you get that, you get five to 10 seconds, depending on the study to kind of read that. And then it's off. And then you go on to the next behavior. You know, Bob found a wallet with $76 in it and he kept the cash and threw it away. You know, that's another thing that might happen or in the day of, of Bob. And it's fun to think about these things. And I still remember an old RA from uh, my first uh, lab in undergrad uh, in BJ Rydell's lab. Her name's Jenny. <laughs> Jenny was great uh, because we would have, you know, she would be our test subject, um, number zero, a lot of time for running these studies. And so I, my job was to come up with like very conflicting materials. Like your goal oftentimes is like, you know, you can do some kind of like online or like in the moment kinds of ways of learning about people versus try to remember who this person is at the end of the study and how would you describe it? Cause those can recruit different interesting cognitive processes and how we learn about people. And it was just Jenny smiling and laughing while she was taking my last study. I was in the lab. She's like, Bob is insane. <laughs> And I love that because that makes it like it's such dry material sometimes when you write it out in a method section. But then when you see a participant take it, you're like, yeah, this is working exactly as I wanted it to. It's interesting. Like it was making me think of their schoolwork in communication on how we respond to characters in media. Like mm-hmm. you were saying with the the reality TV thing. Mm-hmm. But we we paint characters in fictionalized media in the same way, like to, to get a, an impression across and we're all really well versed in forming impressions of people who don't exist in a way that mm-hmm. makes that a psychologically real experience where it's not like some vignette about a set of parameters that you'd be like, I don't really like I could like a lot of psychology studies will do this, right? Yes. They'll go like, here's a brief scenario and we manipulate different factors in that scenario. And we wonder like, what choice would you make? And that almost feels artificial because you're like, when would I be in that scenario? Whereas if it's like, here's some guy, this guy does this and he does this and he does this and he does this. How do you feel about this guy? Like that's something we do constantly. (laughs) We form impressions of people even under these artificial situations and they are real to us, right? We have, we know we have these parasocial relationships (laughs) with characters that don't even exist. Yeah. Which is why celebrities too. yeah. Yeah. And it's a cool way to then be like, yeah, we can actually under the constraints of a lab experiment, really actually capture the thing, even when we don't 
sacrifice the artificial controlled part <laughs> of what yeah, we're trying to do. Right. And and so for for your RA to have the visceral reaction of like this dude is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Like is a thing that you you would actually feel like if you were watching a short film and the character on screen was doing these things, you'd be like, "This doesn't make any sense." <laughs> yeah, right. And it is it's fun. It's, it is part of like we've lost a lot of you know the ability to do theatrical experimental studies. Uh, you think of like Milgram, you think of bystander intervention. Those are really fun because you get to see like nonverbal behavior of people under study and you know, like the scientific sense of it. But that's like, I, I think that's a kind of nice throwback to what we get to do is like, if I can get to, so in our shared lab space from grad school, we got the, the one way mirror. And so we'd get to see people like you and I literally have collaborated on studies where we show people disgusting images and then they have to navigate the cursor to like extremely negative. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is very fun uh, because yeah, that's the right. That's the normative answer. That's, that we just showed you something like, uh, you know, like worms on pizza and it's like very gross. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that is as viscerally evocative as other things, right? Like we're responding to that in that way. Okay. So you have this, this, this guy named Bob. Yes. <laughs> Here's a bunch of stuff that he does. Right. Uh, and like one of the versions of that is like, he does a bunch of great stuff. And he also does a bunch of terrible stuff, Yep. which we would say, like, that's, by the book definition, that is an ambivalent stimulus. Mm -hmm. um, or a two-sided, depending on how we need to, you know, talk about our operations or whatever. But, yeah, it's an, it's an, I would feel comfortable saying that's ambivalent, but in a technical, like, methods report, it might help to separate out that and call it two-sided rather than ambivalent. Okay. You know. I'll, I'll roll with it. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so that, that is the premise of a lot of the work that you've done. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess the question that arises is like, what is it that people experience differently when they meet a Bob who does a bunch of good stuff and a bunch of bad stuff versus when they meet a Bob who's exclusively good or exclusively bad? Like this, experientially, why, why is this a domain that sort of sets the stage for other questions? Uh, I would take it very well from your setup here that a lot of times our studies and our understanding of like how people learn information, we generally present only like positive stuff or only negative stuff. And that to me is actually not that realistic. It's a, it's a lot of the times what helps us navigate the world is to generalize things into generally good or generally bad stuff. So that's what I'm fascinated by is when people encounter truly mixed kind of situations and people, what are they going to do next about it? And so the big findings, of course, are you want to learn more. A lot of times, if you have to deal with Bob, like, let's say, hey, you're going to talk with Bob or like, you're going to read more about Bob. What kind of info would you like to learn about him? Uh, that can make people feel like kind of like, oh, no, like tense about it. Because then the other option is that you just avoid them. Like you're like, I don't know how to make sense of this person. Um, it's not even that they're just necessarily bad. It's just that you don't want to have to even have to deal with the conflict in your head about whether he's going to be good to you or kind to you and like your spouse, or if he's going to be mean to you and like maybe mean to you or insulting to your spouse. And that's, those are some of the described behaviors that we have in that. And it's fun too to, I think, you know, when we talk about these, um, contexts, it's, it's loosely in the sense of like the world at large, but, I like have uh, done so in the in the final study of that recent paper. We we put it into a workplace context because I think a lot of us who have ever worked have had coworkers that 
we find a little uh, conflicting to put it to put it a certain way. And so that's uh, it's good grist for it, too, because then in that context, there's a more appropriate use of decision making about other people. Right. So there's do you recommend this person stay in your team or do you recommend not continuing a project lead with that person. You have to make decisions that essentially re require judging other people and making a decision to stay or go or learn more info or just avoid it altogether. And so those are those are things that I think are understudied um, compared to our vast um, our vast research as a collective on uh, how do we how, how do we navigate ambiguity? Like when something's ambiguous, something's ambiguous, we end up having like lots of different ways to affect people priming or their prior attitudes or their prejudices and so on. But, but, but basically what you're saying is, is people have this craving to see a person as good or bad, right? Like if, if, if I get to, if I need to make a decision about you, I need to just like figure out, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I need to put you in the good bin or the bad bin. And so I will, uh, choose you if you're a good one and I'll reject you if you're a bad one. Yep. Yep. But when people have this, like, well, there's good stuff and bad stuff, <laughs> then there's a problem. Yes. Like, and and I, cr I just need to know. <laughs> Tell me, is it a good or a bad? You present me with the opportunity to learn more information. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> Anything else you can tell me about this guy mm -hmm. <laughs> to help me figure out like what I do with him? Yes. Um, and you know, in the language of ambivalence, right? That's a feeling of conflict. <laughs> like, yes. Like right. I, this is something's wrong here. Like I have this need to figure out what's going on. That is actually, and also uh, a major, because earlier to your question about like, why am I so interested in ambivalence? I think a lot of the attitude theory assumptions I thought were kind of silly because people are silly though, in that why do we want to categorize people as generally good or generally bad? Like that's, that's not that useful if it's like, more accurate to describe them as mixed or they're good in this context, but don't trust them in this context, that kind of thing. Like some of the studies I've done where um, we kind of manipulate whether Bob here, this person in my studies is going to be very reliably good in a work context, but at home, he's actually kind of a jerk. Or we flip that and say he's kind of a schlub at work, but man, he's a great dad. He has like a, a great home life. Those kinds of things are ways to help us segment out information about people we learn or anything we learn about. And that's something I think is interesting about how mind works and how we learn information in general. And people in, in particular, we do that with all the time. You know, it's easier to think of like, Bob's at work, don't give him a deadline. He's just going to whiz by it and not give you anything to do, but invite him to your kid's game or help him coach up the, you know, the soccer team or something like that. He's excellent with kids in that sense. So we do that a lot. We kind of say what we're good at and what we should avoid doing because we're bad at it. And we do that for a lot of the other people in our lives too. So those are, those are things that I think are uh, fun ways to get at it, but that's also what started the expectations project. I'm like, why don't people expect people to be more mixed? <laughs> and it turns out, well, they don't. <laughs> so here's some expectations and here's seven studies to look at it and figure it out. And the idea there's kind of like the point about craving an answer. It's sort of like we just expect there to be an answer. <laughs> like I, I expect when I meet someone, I expect for them to either be a good person or to be a bad person. And that's why it's such a problem. <laughs> when you can't give me that answer and I go, Oh, great. This is, I feel so conflicted about this person because I just wanted them to be a good one or a bad one. Right. And now they're a both one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So, so if you kind of walk us through some of the studies that you do to sort of get at the like, yeah, that's actually what's happening, right? Like part of this problem is that we are entering the scenario expecting people to be one way or another. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we could maybe change that expectation and be like, hey, guys, <laughs> that's not necessarily how the world mm -hmm. is. These moments of ambivalence stop being the same kind of problem. So, so balls in your court. All right. <laughs> What's the story? <laughs> I like, uh, I'll, I'll lean on the one that actually gives the, the almost no expect uh, expectancy granting information where all we, we don't warn people. We don't give them any context. Uh, we just say, uh, everyone gets the same info about here's what, here's what we're going to, we're going to have you learn about a person. Uh, and this person is, you know, just kind of a person what we've seen and we're, we're writing about them for some other purposes but we're just interested in how you learn about them dry no expectation kind of granted info about this um all we and everyone learns the exact same 20 behaviors 10 of which are good and 10 of which are bad and the only way we change between two groups of people learning about bob then is what order they see those behaviors and that, it turns out, is exactly how expectations work. You're trying, you're using like information as you learn it to come up with like, oh, how is he going to act next? How is he going to act next? So if you get all 10 of those positive behaviors, like one after the other, like Bob helped your kids at the soccer game, Bob donated to charity, like from his bonus payment or something like that. And you keep getting uh, one after another positive info. And then at number 11, negative. He's, he's, he's running over bicyclists on his way home. He's, he's uh, yelling at kids to get off his lawn kind of thing. And he keeps doing bad thing, bad number four, bad number five. Those, the people in that condition are very confused and they feel highly undecided and conflicted about Bob. The only thing I need to change to make people feel less undecided and less conflicted about Bob is I kind of just intersperse that info in a predictable pattern. So, you know, Bob sometimes is great with kids at soccer games, but when they go on his lawn, he yells at them. Sometimes he's really generous with his time and money. Other times he's uh, not going to leave a tip, like to the barista at the cafe. And now you start to, because it's an expectation granting pattern of information. So the way that we kind of learn about people is that, well, we don't know necessarily whether there's going to be like... Um, uh, always good or always bad trajectory. And if we get info like that, that means we're going to be in for a major surprise, which we would say is expectancy disconfirming. Whereas if it's more interspersed, people can say, I don't really understand Bob, but I at least know what to expect of him. And that's a, that's a key distinction we like to make. And so with the interspersed thing, it's, it's almost like, Hey, right off the bat, Bob's not a simple character. Yes. <laughs> like, right. Just so you know, like you'll, you'll figure it out right away. Mm -hmm. that, like, this guy's great, also terrible. And then it's just a lot of this guy's great, also terrible. <clears throat> and you go, okay, well, all right, that's just who he is. As opposed to like, oh, this guy seems amazing. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> right. What's he doing? I thought this guy was amazing. And people will generate, you know, explanations. They want to figure out, like, what happened to him? Did he have, like, a brain injury? Or, like, did he, like, get a divorce? And those are all major life events. 
that could end up being kind of like, and they don't necessarily mean the, you know, the villain story from like good to bad. Somebody that's terrible could have a life altering history, like getting in a major car wreck and then suddenly, oh, I've lived my life so, so terribly to now. And now I'm an amazing person. You'll still feel conflicted about that person though. Cause you're like, who's the real Bob now? And like, is this something, that, and there's this implied, you know, course of time over which these behaviors may or may not be happening. And so we kind of like to naturally infer that they're happening in order, even though they may not be. Um, but uh, people, when there's that much of a disconfirmation, that's something I love about the expectations research is that it's exactly kind of how the mind works. It's what people want to do is they want to be able to figure out things before having to deal with them. So if I know what to expect, I can prepare or I know how I'll feel about it in advance or I'll know what to what will happen next after that when I encounter a Bob. I don't know when I will, but I'll know what to do once I do because I have ac accurate expectations of him now. So that's, uh, ambivalence is, is fun to me because it's almost like this fun little like uh, maxim that goes, uh, you know, expect the unexpected, which is, you know, silly to me, uh, but it means like don't have expectations really. Mm. And so if the more you have expectations, the more likely they are to be, you know, disconfirmed and thus you're kind of left without knowing what to do. So it's a functional thing too to feel like when it comes to people and products and just life in general, maybe don't think everything's going to be either awesome or perfectly terrible. It's funny. So the person I was talking to just before you for mm -hmm. this and in the context of the podcast when it comes out, I don't know <laughs> who's going to be first or whatever, um, but he's a guy who does research on the psychology of magic. Uh, oh, I love that. And it's sort of yes, like, of course. Uh, direction. And, and <laughs> when I asked him to define attention, because I was like, hold on. So what actually is, let, let's back all the way Ooh, up. Like what's attention? Philosophical. Um, and part of it is like, it's a predictive model, right? Like mm -hmm. we attend to where we think information is going to be relevant. Right. Yeah. And you know, a lot of what magic is, is sort of exploiting the fact that we have predictions. Mm-hmm. And saying, like, I know where you, I know exactly where you think the important stuff is going to be. I know what you think this object is. And so I can then go like, well, then I just disconfirm it. Right. And then either that's the deception or that's the big reveal. Yeah. In either case, it's like at our core, because I asked him, like, so what if like, what's the fundamental thing we learn about psychology by looking at magic? And it kind of seemed like his answer was and, and listeners <laughs> If you end up hearing that, uh, you can see if I'm right or not uh, about what happened just an hour ago. But it was kind of like, it's the fact that we're prediction machines, that we're constantly in, like, we, we rely on these predictions we make constantly more than we realize. And because we don't realize we do it, that's what can sort of lead us astray. And the whole time I was like, I know I'm about to talk to Jeff about this expectancy <laughs> stuff, which is another example of that. Like, we don't necessarily appreciate that I expect people to be one way or another. And I'm just setting myself up for chaos mm -hmm. <laughs> by, by thinking the world is that simple. Or even more chaos. Yes, right, right. <laughs> or and not even chaos was the word I was looking for, but like I'm setting myself up for confusion. Yes. If I go, this is how people are. Whereas what your work is showing across all these studies is like, if instead your expectation is that this person is actually complicated. Then when I find out, <laughs> I don't have that reaction of this guy's insane. <laughs> I yeah. just go, Oh yeah, that's the guy that, that I, that fits as promised. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this person is both. Um, so what are other, so one of them is you naturally let people come to these expectations, mm -hmm. but what else can you do to sort of 
see whether these expectations change the way people process two-sided individuals. How else do, uh, with what other consequences? Yeah, how do you set up the, the expectations? Oh, so you can tell people, literally. I mean, it's, it's, we try to keep it dry, as you know, like don't give them too much like other ne- unnecessary exposition or information. So we say, his colleagues say he's can be good. Sometimes he's bad though. And some colleagues really like working with him. Other colleagues do not like working with him. It's as simple as that sometimes. Um, We've made it even more minimal, and that's in part, so that's literally one of the names of the studies in that particular article is minimal expectations. And that's not even just the pattern um, of like good, 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 bad, 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 versus good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. This is more like we had to write the difference between conditions of about like six words. And it was like something like, Bob is known to have both good and bad qualities. And then in the other group, it was, Bob is known to have many qualities. And that alone can have a difference in how conflicted people feel about and how undecided they are about this person they just met. It's just, it's, it's almost like that, the simplicity of that is essentially almost a prime. And that could be then used to interpret all sorts of kinds of information. Other directions we think that are interesting to take, though, is uh, if we have a really strong expectation for mixed information, and then you only get one-sided info, then people will feel maybe a bit like at an advantage because they'll know, like, I know what to expect now, though. So even if you surprise me later, I won't be as surprised with this countervailing information like he's actually a jerk or uh, he's actually a saint like what he was just lying about this the whole time to save the children and the puppies you know there's a lot of those fun scenarios where people um, work those into like even stories like movies and tv where a lot of these seemingly negative things that this person is doing were actually for this great cause right Um, but having an expectation going into that of just like this doesn't quite seem like they can't be this bad right that's a classic, that's essentially when people say that, that's about saying you're kind of expecting ambivalence. Um, if you're thinking it's too good to be true, that's the name of a project I also have in marketing, that's expecting ambivalence because you're like, where are the side effects? Where are the, where are the downsides to this thing that I'm considering buying or using? So those are all different ways of instantiating kind of an expectation that Things will have both positive and negative qualities. There will be all these other qualities too that I'm like, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing yet. But I don't, that doesn't mean I need to shoehorn it into like a good or a bad category. Hmm. Yeah. In in the studies with expectations uh, that I've seen, the expectations are usually about the stimulus, right? Yes. Bob is this way. Yeah. But kind of the implications that we've been circling around are broader, where it's just like, do I approach the world with a mindset yeah. that things are complicated, yeah. that no one is just good or just bad? Right. Do we know anything about how that, like, can, could we confidently translate that to, like, a, an approach to the world? <laughs> oh, I imagine. Uh, but but you've not done that. You haven't, like, instantiated <laughs> well, those kinds of beliefs. Uh, I'm familiar with uh, your work. Oh. Uh- <laughs> I was not thinking of that, by the way, when you... <laughs> well, we had talked about it for years on dialectical thinking, uh, in the sense, uh, just being able to uh, allow contradictions to be present without having to resolve them, necessarily. In a, in a broad brush, that's essentially what a lot of the differences in being more or less of a dialectical thinking person uh, allows. And that's something that you could 
reverberate that in um, a, a more ambivalent expectation specifically about it doesn't need resolution for this person to be both good and bad. That could be the, the resolution is that's what I saw. And so it's about then almost like a worldview being like, all right, if I'm thinking about people, the category of people and persons out in the world, they're probably not going to be amazing 100% of the time. They're also probably not going to be terrible 100% of the time. And it's actually going to be far more in that middle. Maybe it'll skew positive in these in these groups or these communities that matter to me. Uh, like, you know, psychologists, like we're in that group of psychologists for us because we chose this. So we'll probably like talking with each other a lot. Um, and then uh, another group where, you know, they can have their own community, like lawyers. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to particularly like a lot of their conversations. So I don't think it's going to be all terrible all the time to talk to lawyers. I don't think it's always going to be awesome to talk to psychologists, but it is something to be said about, yeah, sure. It'll trend one certain way or another. I just doesn't, it just doesn't need for me to be so black and white in a sense of like 100% one or the other direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in the middle and in the dialecticism work, they refer to it as the middle way in a lot no. of ways, um, which just to to fill in the pieces, right? This is the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Like a naive belief about the world, which just means like, you know, the beliefs that we carry about the world. Some of the people of the world have the perception that things are one way or the other, right? You Like it's black or it's white, it's right or it's wrong, it's good or it's bad. Or you could adopt a different perspective, which is everything is kind of everything. <laughs> and there's always some good in the bad, and there's some truth in the falsities and some falsehoods in the truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is often mapped onto cultural differences, at least in the early days of looking at this, that like Western cultures tend to have this less dialectical, like <laughs> we come from a uh, culture of debate and rigor and like you're right. wrong and yes. I'm right. Whereas in East Asian cultures where philosophies have more typically emphasized this kind of like Taoist notion of um, like the, the yin yang is, is the, the right. visual depiction of this, right? Exactly. There's always some white in the black and some black in the white. Yeah. Um, and so work that I've done and others show like when people adopt this kind of dialectical mentality of like the way that the world is, is just a, a world of mixedness. <laughs> yeah. Then when we were exposed to things that are not only good or only bad, that doesn't feel as, challenging or wrong or uncomfortable right. to us. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, yeah, some of that work does actually manipulate, like telling people, Hey, <laughs> the world isn't so simple. Uh, and those instructions like saying, Hey, Bob has some good things going for him mm-hmm. and he's got some problems. Yeah. Those kind of accomplish the same thing in two different ways where it's just like s- setting expectations, right? Like mm-hmm. don't come into this thinking that it's going to be one way or the other. That's a misguided approach to what you're about to face. And the nice thing is that when you set those expectations, it seems like people go like, all right, well, Mm -hmm. do they though? So Uh. I wonder like at the mean level, right? So like, Mm -hmm. yes, people become more comfortable with the fact that Bob is good and bad under these like revised expectations. Mm -hmm. But do they become totally cool with it? Yeah, it depends. So uh, uh, um, uh, finding we in a retrospective of all of the studies we ran in that particular project made perfect sense is that the more minimal our expectations induced, induced either by that you know pure behavioral pattern or this like designed uh, minimal expectation, 
those are gonna those people still feel pretty surprised in all cases because they barely have like a leg to stand on expectation wise. That was the design of it. But if you give them a pretty good verbal induction and say, "Hey, here's a paragraph, like a brief one, like you know, four sentences about Bob," some of the people he works with they like him. Some of the other people he works with they don't like him. So he's known to have both positive and negative qualities. That little that has a robust effect in that it just very simply conveys the, the core info about the evaluation of Bob. How do people think about him? How will then you test what you think about him uh, going forward? So some people are going to use these expectations more when they feel like there's a lot more kind of meat to them. And other times when it's just kind of like a, 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 a brief little gust of an expectation on route to learning about somebody, then those won't be as useful. But they'll be a little bit useful. Um, it just doesn't. It takes the sting away. Yeah, it takes the immediate impact, but you still feel some impact of mm -hmm. uh, this is a conflicting person. But at least that kind of you know got a little whisper of a of an, indica an indication of that as an expectation beforehand. Because it kind of seems still that like okay, I, I saw it coming, but it's still kind of weird, right? That you are the same person who robbed a bank as who donated. <laughs> To the charity, yeah. Like, you you robbed the bank to donate to the charity, and even if you did, like I don't know, like what, what do I do with do you? I? And those uh, are usually fun questions. Like a lot of what you're working moral morality is really, I think, interesting. Um, in general, all of moral psych is because of it's oftentimes trying to create scenarios that make people feel kind of torn. It's a and dilemma. That's, that's it's what a, they call the right. moral dilemmas. Yeah, exactly. So those are all designed to challenge you and think about pros and cons or ambivalent reactions towards like one of two or three different options. And so I, I do enjoy it from that perspective uh, as the ambivalence view of it, at least. But even still, the point is just like, it, so that example was dilemma-y. <laughs> but mm -hmm. like if it's just two distinct things that are true about this guy, mm -hmm. that he helped his neighbor unpack and that he like uh, yelled at a kid yeah, uh, in, right. the, in the neighborhood. Right. Still you go like, yeah, Bob's a mixed character, huh? And mm -hmm. you go, okay, so I'm not as surprised, but still, like, what person does both of these things? Mm -hmm. uh, I still, I still wish it was just one or the other. Mm -hmm. And then I, I don't know. You deal with this here, but in your other work, it's like if I have to now make a decision about you, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. do I hire this guy? Right. Uh, <laughs> that's the last study. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. so. so we adapted the whole power and inaction uh, stuff for that final study. And that was, and, I mean, obviously we had the materials ready to do that. And we're like, this will make decision-making kind of a fun outcome to see. So, so what, so what happens? Like, like, let's not talk about the power part yet, but if I still see this person as a good character and a bad character, and I now have to make a choice, mm -hmm. what is the choice that people want to make? <laughs> So that a lot of people uh, want to say or ask for like what is what are so what are you going to decide on, and we think the probably normative answer in which our data show is true is people go for the midpoint when they're provided like a kind of like I'm in between the two, but even when we do that and we tell people like which way are you leaning are you leaning to firing them or like maintaining them are you leading to promote them or like not promoting them depending on a frame we want to use, we can find people generally will make about the same choice. They'll just take longer to do it to the more to the extent it's more surprising. So when we give people these accurate expectations to expect a mixed bob, they're gonna be more decisive about like, I I am in the middle. Yeah. So instead of waffling at the moment where they have to make a decision, we allow them to say, you can just say you're in, in between and that will be 
more helpful to move on and then say, well, once I know I'm in the middle on this guy, now it's time to learn some more info. And that's what a bunch of other work has been able to show in ambivalence is that there's all sorts of other predictions of where you'll seek for info in a biased manner or in a, you know, maybe too inundated manner. Like you just want to learn everything before because you're so undecided and tense about it. So the main, the main, um, the main, uh, dependent measure when we talk about behavior from ambivalence that I favor is actually it's the lack of behavior. I'm really interested in like the, the how much delayed people are to make the exact same decision. I think that's an interesting way to think about behavior because if you don't know, then just say you don't know, we'll even provide the answer for you. And they still kind of are hesitant about it when it's, uh, when it's less expected. But the kind of canonical version is like, you have to hire this person or, or, well, you don't hire or fire a person, but you hire this you person. You have to recommend or hiring yeah, or recommend firing. Hiring or That's firing. how we frame it. Um, well, would the same candidate be a logical hire and a logical fire? We uh, you have we, to already work there if you're going to get fired. So yeah, so we, that it's a good uh, operational point actually. And when we do these studies, we'll actually counterbalance whether it's a promotion frame or a firing frame because right, we ran into that design issue where that's almost never going to be the decision. It's not going to be whether we're going to give you a bonus versus you're fired. Right. Uh, <laughs> you you generally know uh, before that decision like which trend you're directing it in. But what we do is whether it's an action or inaction in that frame. And so inaction is supposedly something that ambivalence would favor greatly. But when it's time to actually just say like, yeah, go for it. Like, what do you recommend? They still hesitate to even recommend not doing anything. So it's on inaction about whether we're acting or not. So should we promote this person or not? Yes. And if you're conflicted, you should just say like, "Uh, no, I, 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 I don't have enough information, mm-hmm. so let's just not do it. Right. But instead, it sounds like people just go like, oh, yes. I don't know. <laughs> right. And it's it's fantastic to me because it, it competes then against like, clearly there's one version of this prediction, which would say people are very quick once they're highly ambivalent to say, boom, press the button, not promote because I'm undecided. But that also means, well, that's kind of a decision. And people, I think, are actually making that inference uh, psychologically, where once you once you make a recommendation, that's your recommendation now. And now that's what they're hesitating on, is almost the expression of one over the other. Because I'm saying, in that don't promote, I'm still saying, like, I recommend us not promote this person. Right. I'm against promotion. I'm against it. Yeah, right. Whereas if I'm conflicted about this person, uh, I don't know. Right. Like, I'd much rather be like... Come back to me later. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to make this decision <laughs> that's now. Right. And that's what powerful people do. They like to delegate. Yes. Okay. So so to, to wind <laughs> us up uh, or to wind us down, uh, this power stuff is cool because it, it sort of brings in this perspective that would have made maybe other predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it about powerful people and the decisions they make that get mucked up <laughs> when we account for the fact that we can be conflicted about our decisions. Yeah. So powerful people, there's, um, lots of different theories of how power changes us psychologically. And in particular, they almost all agree. You're more goal directed. So you're more decisive. You act more. If I make you feel powerful, you're going to do more stuff like whatever it is for good or for bad. So everyone kind of already agrees that, you know, the power corrupts is a, is a psychological naive theory. It's just a saying people like to throw around because we see politicians all the time act that way potentially. But that has to do a lot of times with describing the situation 
or the peer, the person they find themselves in once they have power. Because people with power that are generally in a good situation look like they're doing great things with that too. Like um, you can think of uh, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife Mackenzie, uh, Mackenzie Scott. Um, like as soon as she got the divorce and all of the money, she gave away like tons of it. So she had so much power very all of a sudden. That didn't corrupt at all. She was giving away as more than the next nine billionaires in the world combined, like in one single year. So there's a lot to say about like power makes people like once you have it, and it turns out you don't even need to have the power. You don't have that need the like resources or the time or the money. You can feel that way. You can feel powerfully different, and that'll make you want to act more too. And so, what happens when powerful people have ambivalence? That's the whole premise of the paper. And so, um, there's a lot of fun old work uh, that I cited in it. It's called uh, Old Sergeant Syndrome. And that is when a commanding officer, in the middle of like an intense battle or um, some, they're, they're the ones that are going to have to decide whether to, you know, push the advance or retreat with the troops. But what happens is staying put. In other words, doing nothing, the status quo, is the worst option. And that's what happens a lot of times with the old sergeants in this syndrome, is that they're paralyzed by the indecision because they know either way they decide something, people will die or their own position or their, their, their country, their forces will be in a weaker position if they make the wrong decision. So what they do is they make actually the worst one, which is doing nothing. And I thought that was interesting because it's literally the person with the most power in that, in that kind of position right there. Who should be decisive. Who should they be have, the person who just goes, let's do it. That's what power is for oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, the original version of that uh, paper, which I'm still kind of mad, it got edited out uh, for uh, for trimming it for a different uh, version, uh, article format, but small potatoes. But it was, a, uh, it was about how uh, George Bush, once he won re-election, was I didn't come here just to sit around. I came here to get things done. You know, that's that's what a lot of people think power does. And he's right. A lot of psych theories agree with that. Well, then, you know, during the course of his presidency, he has to make this decision on Iraq, the troop surge back in in the late term of his in the middle of his uh, second uh, term as president. Then he's then his tune changes and he says, well, I'm not going to be rushed into making a decision. Um, and it's like, hey, uh, what, what changed? And the answer is ambivalence. Right. So it turns out, yeah, it's easy to make decisions when the path is clear. If you give people very consistent info about some employee that is crushing it, you're like, boom, boom, hit the promote button all day and do it quickly. So that's one of the things we show and replicate in those studies is if you give people um, a promotion decision and this employee is killing it, absolutely crushing it. Uh, if you give people making them feel more powerful, not having like, you don't have to give them a role. You don't have to give them resources or money or anything. Just say, you know, here's, here's some material that'll make you feel more powerful. They push the button to promote faster. They're more quickly making the same decision. Well, what if he's mixed? What if Bob is instead got some really great qualities? Like he's, you know, killing the sales numbers too, but then he's also kind of like, like showing up to work a little drunk or leaving <laughs> early and he's made some like rude comments at like party functions. And then people are like, do we promote this guy? Then you give somebody the same person who is so decisive about promotion earlier is now the one that's most likely to hesitate. So they're taking the longest to make a decision. The most powerful people, in other words, take the longest when it's an ambivalent or two-sided uh, thing you're thinking about making a decision about. So that's what I like the juxtaposition of those two um, theories a lot. It was very clean and uh, it worked out really nicely in the, in the studies we ran. 
So the, the, the quickest and the slowest decisions are made by the most powerful. That's right. Is a way that you could frame it. Yes, exactly um, right. And and so so often we just are only looking at one half of that mm -hmm. story where right. you go like, oh, if the answer is clear, power is a very clear like, oh, I know what I'm doing. That looks good. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. That's right. <laughs> uh, so like ultimately what is it though about power that slows people even further down if they feel ambivalent? Like why <laughs> – Kind of doesn't actually make sense. So make it make sense. Jeff. Yeah, you got it. Well, uh, I'm sure not just me, but a lot of you, your guests and you yourself, of course, uh, have probably covered this is about uh, the idea that sometimes we vary in how much we think our thoughts are true or useful or valid in some ways. And so this kind of thought validation perspective is a lot of where the power theory uh, predicts things interesting ways. So um, with uh, power, if I feel more powerful, it's not just that I'm going to just act more, behave more. It seems that feeling more powerful makes you feel like you can be more confident in your judgments, in your thoughts. So if you have thoughts while you're feeling powerful, they feel more right. You like them more. They feel like they're going to be more correct and useful. And that's what's helping power propel this behavior, is it's making people feel like my thoughts are correct, so I'm going to go with them right now. And of course, getting a bunch of money, like um, people that suddenly come into a, a lot of money, they suddenly do stuff. And when you see that, uh, oftentimes that's because they're probably like, this is what I've wanted to do. Now I have it. I feel like I can do this. So I'm going to do that more. And so that was the perspective that our paper takes is that, well, when it comes to ambivalence, people with that are feeling very powerful trust both of their mixed reactions. They, they, they trust that Bob is really good at these things and he's also bad at these other things. And they believe those thoughts are both equally correct. And so when you believe in your ambivalence to be valid as a reaction, you're, you're more likely to hesitate even more. So it magnifies the kind of dominant effect of your thoughts in terms of predicting your behavior. And in the case of ambivalence, it's fun because it's literally a lack of behavior that we're observing. Yeah, so it's kind of like, uh, in this case of this person being not obviously good or obviously bad, it's like someone is saying, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Mm -hmm. And if I'm in a position of power, I go, yeah, I'm right. That's I right. don't know. Yes. Like I'm even more sure I don't <laughs> yeah. know. So like I, I must slow down. Right. Whereas without that sense of confidence, people go like, well, I don't know, but like, what do I know? <laughs> right. I what don't do know, I know, but what do I know? <laughs> Lacking power is best, I think, thought of when you're low in power is when people shrug and say, but what do I know? That's the ultimate, like, I think, good equivalence, verbally speaking, of when people feel like they don't feel very powerful at all. They're kind of, what do I know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> this, this has been fun, but I, I know we have to wrap up. So I just want to say thanks for taking the time to share all this stuff with us. And it was great to catch up. All right, man. That was a lot of fun. That'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you to Jeff Durso for taking the time to come on the podcast. We actually sat down and recorded this in May of 2022 uh, at a conference, but with a backlog of other stuff, you're only just hearing it now. So <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain. You can find out more about Jeff and his research by visiting links to his work in the show notes and by going to jeffdurso.com. That's G-E-O-F-F -F as Jeff. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, follow it on social media or other media apps. Go to opinionsciencepodcast.com for transcripts and previous episodes. Email me feedback, cookie recipes, or your adoring praise. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Have I given you enough homework to do? (laughs) That's it for me. I'm going to go try and recover from this cold and enjoy the first few moments of a fresh year. I'll see you back in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. But in the meantime... Bye-bye.